0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. July 27th, 2023, the Can Israel Survive as a Democracy edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. joined by, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily.
1: Hey, David. Hey, John. Hey. And
0: that's... John Dickerson of CBS Primetime in New York City, just off the set of CBS This Morning, which he's hosting this week. Hi to you both. Is there hot stuff in CBS This Morning this week?
2: Yeah, it was. It's been a. It's been actually a total delight with my colleagues um, Nancy Chen, Nate Burleson, and Dana Jacobson. It's been it's been totally fun. I mean, I'm doing the show at night as well, uh, and, and I have two long form interviews this week, so I'm a little crispy, but um, it's been fun. This week on The Gabfest,
0: how dangerous is Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu's plan to weaken the Israeli Supreme Court? What does it portend for the future of Israel? Then, should elite colleges get rid of legacy admissions? And then, what is going on in the Hunter Biden case? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter.
3: Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy. Interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood? Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.
0: Israel's parliament, the Knesset, by a vote of 64 to 0 because the 56 in the minority walked out approved the most contentious change to its laws in decades. They passed a law that would bar Israel's Supreme Court from using reasonableness as a standard to overturn legislation. While superficially, it's a pretty small change, it's perceived by a lot of Israelis, especially those who are uh, more skeptical of Prime Minister Netanyahu as a wedge in the door of undermining checks and balances in Israel of of setting the country up for a form of majority rule that will put it on a path to becoming a theocratic, hyper-nationalist, authoritarian Jewish state. So Emily, what did the Knesset do and why was this pretty small change on its surface uh, so contentious?
1: Well, so first of all, it's not that small. I mean, it is true that the court has other rationales they can rely on to Um, strike down acts of the government. But they use reasonableness in important contexts. And reasonableness is a standard that comes from British law that other countries like Australia also have. And so it is a real limit on the court. The thing that matters the most, though, is the context, which is that there are other parts to the government's plan for judicial overhaul. Or, you know, in the words of the um, liberal Hebrew newspaper Haaretz, judicial coup, the government has said that it's planning when it comes back from its break in the fall to also take the power of the court away to hear certain cases. And most importantly, I think, to change the way judges are selected in Israel. And this is the I think the biggest fear that the critics of Netanyahu's government have in Israel because it's full on capture of the court system, right? All of this is also situated in the context of Israel's particular form of democracy in which the judiciary is the primary check on the power of One House of the Knesset, not two houses that, you know, balance each other out the way we have in the United States of the House and the Senate, and also an executive branch that isn't really separate from the Knesset either, because the cabinet ministers that Bibi Netanyahu picks are members of the Knesset. And so... And there also is no federated system where you devolve power onto the states the way we have in the United States. And they don't have a written constitution. And you can pass a kind of quasi-constitutional law, which is what this change this week was. They're called basic laws. You can pass that with a simple majority of the Knesset. So this is a democracy with a much weaker system of, of checks and balances. And if you imagine... Really taking the court out, or just making its role very diminished, then you worry about you know this kind of path to um, autocracy, hypernationalism, and religious Jewish control that you were just talking about.
0: One of the things we've talked about before, when we I think when we talked about this topic earlier, is that every country kind of has its own recipe for how it creates prevents majoritarianism for how it creates balance in the united states we have very strong state governments we have a powerful supreme court we have a weird this weirdly structured senate um which some of these things have terrible they have terrible effects but they also have good effects and that that's our kind of check and balance in the uk you have a super strong civil servants and this phenomenal tradition of common law that runs through that that is a check on the parliamentary power And in Israel, as you're pointing out, like the major check has been the Supreme Court and this sort of almost independently appointed Supreme Court. Um, So you could, you can imagine Americans saying, well, we elect judges here, or, you know, judges are appointed politically here or judges, you know, don't have, don't have this, but it's never, you can't have these one-to-one comparisons because the way every country constitutes itself is different. And the way these checks and balances work is different. And what I think you're saying, Emily, is that it feel, what feels so alarming to a lot of Israelis on the left is that the fundamental uh, power balance that has allowed Israel to be this kind of pretty diverse uh, democracy, which is a Jewish democracy, but also has Arab citizens that ha- that has protected civil rights, that that balance is now um, fundamentally out of whack or could become out of whack if, if Netanyahu gets his way.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, this whole thing of changing how they pick judges, currently it's like mostly in the hands of the kind of professional Israeli legal profession. It's the judges themselves. It's members of the Israeli bar. It's not entirely, but its it's majority of the committee is a step or two removed from the Knesset and the prime minister. And they want to take control of the process of selecting judges. And when you look at countries like Hungary and Poland that have really – not are no longer strong democracies. They're like very hollowed out. One of the initial really important steps is that you have a challenge to the authority of the high court of the nation, and then the um, elected government takes control of selecting judges and that way takes out its rivals, adversaries, the people who are the check on its power. And that's exactly what's happened in those other countries. Israel is not right now, clearly... <laughs> like on the glide path, but this is like a first step. And so that's why this particular measure has engulfed the country in protest. Um, it's that fear.
2: I was talking to Stephen Zipperstein of of Stanford, the professor of Jewish culture and history. And I think what you were to what you were saying, Emily, was that the imagination of what could go forward um, is part of what's at play here once these checks are removed. and And David, you just mentioned that that this is what, you know, Netanyahu wants. And Zipperstein was saying that actually what makes this worrisome is the surrounding administrators. He said, imagine if Marjorie Taylor Greene had admin- had power and that Netanyahu is in some sense the lapdog of the extreme right, that this isn't opening a lane for one person. It's for an entire block um,
0: and that, that that's a part of what makes it um, so disturbing for people. I think what's sad about this is that there is no longer any question about to me there's no longer any real question about whether israel can be jewish a jewish democracy it can be jewish or it can be a democracy but it cannot be both given the way its population is distributed and given the growth rate of the right wing leaning groups in the country particularly ultra-orthodox and the the population trends in the country the only question about how quickly israel becomes this hypernationalist quite discriminatory state where huge swaths of the people who live in the territory are are completely disenfranchised and and stripped of most of their rights the only question is whether it takes place in like 10 years or 50 years um, because the demographics are moving in that direction and there are millions and millions of palestinians who are living under israeli rule And the, the Jew, the Jewish government, the Jews who kind of dominate Israel, Israel's government now are not going to, they're not going to countenance a situation which is a, which is a truly multi, multi multiracial, multi uh, religious democracy. And it's, it's terrible. It's sad.
1: Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. Right. And I think for a lot of Palestinians, they feel like this is kind of a sideshow, right? Like the obvious huge issues to them are the ones that you're talking about. And this is a fight mostly, not entirely, but mostly among Israeli Jews. And it feels like a kind of short term, a big fight, but a more short term one that isn't necessarily really going to change any of those dynamics that you were talking about. At the same time, in the short to medium term, it's really important. Um another thing I think about a lot is like just how much the folly and cynicism of Bibi Netanyahu is responsible for what's happening. I mean, I really wonder like how many Jewish leaders have been this terrible for the Jewish people at least in my view. Like I don't know, King Herod? I mean, Israel hasn't lasted, hasn't been there that long. There haven't been that many opportunities to screw it up this badly. And it just does seem that Netanyahu is willing to do anything to stay in power. And that's like feeding into what we're seeing here.
0: But Emily, I get—I mean, I think, look, I have absolutely no sympathy for Netanyahu. And I have no political truck with the ultra-Orthodox or the right-wing Jewish nationalists. But I think there are a lot of Jews and a lot of Israelis who would say, a Jewish state that controls geographically all this territory, where you know where you have all these Orthodox Jews who have a safe haven and who are uh, are, are continuing the religious and 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 uh, Talmudic tr- traditions of Israel of of Ju- Judaism, and it's a str- militarily strong. That's a pretty good situation. Like I, I think you, as a secular Jew or relatively secular left, relatively left wing Jew, find it demoralizing but i don't think that the majority of israelis necessarily find it demoralizing
1: yes i mean he is elected that is part of the equation here and this whole question i mean it goes back to being jewish and democratic those are the founding core tenets of israel what does that mean what kind of jewish and can we have both of them in light of the shifting demographics and the answer to the democratic part is as you were saying no no Unless there's some kind of power sharing, you know, whether it's like a confederated system that is one state or whether it's two states. But there has to be much more real. I mean, there is so little real political power for Palestinians right now, and it only seems to be diminishing.
0: I mean the overwhelming or the a strong majority of Jews who live in Israel support the policies of Netanyahu.
1: Well, they don't support this judicial ref- set of changes, though, right? I mean, it is important. And, and maybe, again, this is like we're just swimming in this particular lane, but the protests have been in both religious and secular parts of the country. Netanyahu does not have support for this, just to make that point clear. Maybe it doesn't matter that much to you.
0: Are you saying that, I guess I haven't looked at the polling, but 20% of Israeli citizens are Arabs, non-Jewish Arabs, and they are against their, they opposed to Netanyahu for the most part. So it's the eight of the 80% who are Jews.
1: It's still, like I think the, I think it's still it's underwater, been, honestly, this particular wow, set of policies. That's, yeah,
0: that's, that's hard. Yeah. John, one of the, the most interesting questions is kind of what is going to happen to the Israel as this economic engine of the world. I mean, it's been incredibly successful and a lot of what's made it successful are the relatively secular, relatively left wing, companies, some of which are military, security, high-tech, agriculture, that have thrived in the country. You know, what do you think is going to happen with them?
2: I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of reporting about the the brain drain that's going to happen. The, I can't remember whether it was our reporting from Liz Palmer in Tel Aviv or someone else who reported. Um, the doctor's WhatsApp group that formed after the vote with about a thousand doctors who were trading Travel tips. Basically, they were going to leave the country. So, um, if that momentum attains stays, then it's going to be a, a you know a big problem. But the question is whether that's the initial shock of the moment, and then whether um, that brain drain actually comes to uh, to take place. Which I don't think we know. The other interesting issue, of course, is how much does this put pressure on. The Biden administration and or, which makes a lot, which talks a lot about, you know, the democratic ties with Israel. Netanyahu has been asked, you know, has been invited by Biden to come for a visit. Well, it's just a tricky thing for Biden. He's not going to ever move an inch really away from Israel, but it puts him in a sticky place because these are not policies that are consistent with all the other things he says about democracy when he's uh, talking in other venues about other countries.
1: Just to close this out, the Israeli Supreme Court has agreed to hear petitions against this new law, and that will happen in September. And so the court itself is going to play a role in this national and international debate about the court's powers. That's going to become part of the story here. And the protests, which have been incredibly important in creating a sense of urgency and affecting the course of events they will really likely continue. And so, I think the real question going forward, the first question is what's the Supreme Court going to do in the fall? What is the government going to do? Are they really going to follow through on these broader judicial overhaul plans? And then if they do, what will the response be?
0: I want to give a huge thank you to our Slate Plus listeners because of listeners like you, we've been able to keep doing the Gabfest for so long. Slate Plus members get tons of great stuff for their subscription. They get bonus segments every episode, special discounts on live shows. They don't ever hit the Slate paywall on the Slate site and a lot more. And this week for our Slate Plus segment, we're going to be talking about, Emily and I are going to be talking about our personal relationship with Israel and how that's affected us. And you've just heard us talking about the political, our political thoughts on it. Here we're going to be talking more about personally how how our own relationship with Israel has evolved. So if you're a member... Thank you. Enjoy it. If you are not a member, please go to slate.com slash GapFest Plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GapFest Plus. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend, an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting Auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Biden administration has announced an investigation of legacy admissions at Harvard. Legacy students, of which I was one, I would note, get admitted to Harvard at a much higher rate than other applicants. According to one report today, it might be four, you are four times more likely to get admitted as a legacy to an elite school than the average applicant. Um, even after you control for higher test scores and grades, which legacy kids tend to have in part, because they come from wealth and privilege and get some of those benefits. um, They legacy students are over admitted at a higher rate and legacy students at Harvard tend to be relatively white. They're about 70% white, which is a much higher rate than the overall undergraduate population. So the, the, the implication from the Biden administration investigation, which was spurred by some uh, groups concerned with this racial disparity among among uh, legacy admits, is that this is a way of reinforcing, of, of weakening admission for uh, black and brown students at at the benefit of white students, and that's a, a problem that uh, the civil rights division should investigate. And this, of course, comes shortly after the Supreme Court's decision to bar universities from using race-based affirmative actions to guide admissions decisions. So, John, are legacy admissions like a big deal? I and mean, we're going to talk about them, but are they a big deal? They're a huge deal on this data set um,
2: that has been the part of all of this that was um, put together by economists at Harvard, Brown, I think that's right. The three of them, two yeah. Harvard, one Brown. Um, it's called
1: Opportunity Insights.
2: Yes, exactly. Opportunity Insights at um, uh, at Brown, which is run by Raj Chetty. I mean, it's basically there's affirmative action for white rich people. And, you know, this, this matters, as Annie Lowry wrote in The Atlantic, because these 12 institutions shape um, and significantly affect Um, and, and, and we interviewed Raj Chetty on, on our show and they incredibly, they hugely affect the ladder to success and the influence they have, um, that a small number of, of the graduates from these schools have a massive impact on the gateways to positions of influence in America. And it's reinforcing so that these are influential graduates and then they have kids and then that elite influential set of kids go to the elite institutions and it perpetrates just this kind of rarefied crust of the upper crust of America
0: right that it's not necessarily that going to an elite institution gives you such an advantage if you're gonna become a doctor an everyday doctor like you can be, go to any university get a good degree go to a good med school get a become a successful doctor make a good living it's a, at the at the sort of elitist of the elites at the at the very top of things. The advantage of having gone to an elite school is profound. So you're much more likely to get a job working at a Goldman Sachs if you've gone to an elite institution. You're much more likely to be in the one percent of people of earners. You're much more likely to be a CEO or senator or justice. So in the in the kind of as you say, the crust of the crust, that elite advantage is profound. And now and legacy kids get it an extremist.
2: One, one um, reverberation that we're seeing is now, I don't know whether it'll go anywhere, but the bill in the Senate to basically deny federal funding to institutions that have uh, preferential treatment for legacies and high dollar donor kids um, has just been reanimated in the Senate. It's been around for a while, but it's just been reanimated. And I think that's a part of this whole set of conversations.
1: There's two other important findings of about inequality and how it works at these elite institutions from the Opportunity Insights research. One is about athletes, the way that preferences for athletes are also benefiting mostly white and affluent kids, because it turns out that aside from football and basketball, all the other sports are dominated by affluent kids right now because you have to pay for and go to these like expensive travel programs. And so it's not just like fencing and squash, it's soccer, That I actually was like new to me. And the second thing is what David Leinhart, my colleague at the Times, calls private school polish. And so the idea here is that the winners are the kids who go to the super elite private high schools, not Catholic schools, by the way, but like the Daltons of the world, because they get really great recommendation letters from their teachers and their guidance counselors make phone calls for them. And basically the sort of old fashioned prep school feeder system is still very much alive and well. And yes, low-income kids also get a preference, um, but it's not as great. And the losers in this part of the equation are like the affluent public school kids because at those mostly suburban high schools, they're just, the guidance counselors aren't as like tapped in. Um, so that's another sort of element of unfairness in all of this. And then of course, David, as you mentioned, we have the Supreme Court overturning race-based affirmative action. And so this is a moment of like, real potential change in university admissions. And I think we genuinely, I don't know what's going to happen next. Um, I feel like what should happen is that these elite schools should all join hands and end legacy preferences at the same time. Also stop recruiting athletes, maybe with the exception of football and basketball, that would be fine with me because those are the sports that people actually go and watch at the schools, I guess for Title IX reasons, you also have to come up with some sports for women that you would hang on to and like, fine, good.
2: You'd also need, you'd have to do that because part of what you're doing here is killing your flow of money by, I mean, the reason you let in the elite, you know, and that's why you need the sports at least is to replace that.
1: I don't think that's true. I have been told, I mean, maybe you're right, but I have been told that a lot of the money that comes to these schools from athlete graduates goes to athletics. It does not go to the rest of the school, but maybe you meant something else.
2: No, 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 no. I meant if you aren't allowing the kids of the rich graduates to come, the rich graduates won't be writing checks to your university. And so if they're not writing them, you need to have your sports programs because the sports programs bring in a lot of money to the schools and you're going to need money because you're because part of the move to equality here will... Um, probably mean lower donations.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, this whole thing, the schools defend legacy preferences in part because of exactly what you're talking about. I mean, they also talk about like loyalty and, you know, building relationships over time, but there is a financial transaction part of it. I am unmoved by this. These are extremely wealthy institutions and they need to figure out a way to deal with this. And I guess in my reporting over the years, what I've been struck by is the number of reasons the universities have come up with not to change because the status quo has been very comfortable for them and has allowed them to cater to alumni and to be elitist, and they claim to be these kind of liberal bastions of opportunity, but really, they have not functioned that way in our society. And now, like, this very clear mirror is being held up to them, and I just don't see how they lose race-based affirmative action without addressing some of these other um, drivers of unfairness. Because just imagine, like, if you don't change anything, what's going to happen is that you're percentage of black and hispanic students is going to come down Your uh, and then your percentage of asian and white students is going to go up and you're also gonna keep admitting all these rich people at rates that are not really justified simply by their achievements like i would like to think that would be unsustainable for these schools i mean we'll see
0: can i look at this from a different direction which is uh, look i went to harvard uh, i have a child that went to yale um so I'm, I am not somebody who's like, oh, these institutions don't mean anything. We should don't, they're, they're screw them. I mean, I understand.
2: Oh my God. Ab- <clears throat> Wait a minute. I, that I, was I, David Plotz doing a voice. You don't do voice I have like never heard you do that voice.
1: I kind of liked sorry. it. I that was continue like continue doofus on.
2: voice by David okay. Plotz. Did you
1: learn uh, that at
2: Harvard? God. <laughs> <laughs> he was imitating a University of um, Virginia graduate.
0: Um I know that since you haven't left New Haven in the last twenty-seven years, Emily, you've you never heard anyone talk <laughs> might, like that before. I not don't know what talk that like is. This. Uh, <laughs> the, the, no, sorry, we don't talk that way in the confines of Yale Law School. Yes, I, I, I do think legacy ad, admissions is a, it's, a, it's a, it's a baleful. It's, it's a problem. It's a bummer. It's bad. I think the influence that elite colleges have is bad. But I also think that maybe we would get. Make a lot of difference if those of us who are in positions where we're hiring, where we're running institutions, where we're making decisions, just found just like made a conscious effort to pay a, a ton less attention to those elite institutions. I and elite, An elite credentials, you mean? And elite credentials, yeah, elite credentials. I may, I really try very very hard to not find out what college any of the people applying for jobs. With me went to. I just don't think it's an interesting fact. I don't know. Like you could, you could ask me. Like where did you know the the my top uh, five colleagues at CityCast go to college? I am not sure where any of them went to college. I could probably like pull it out of my ass if I had to, but I just don't even know. And I it is a it is a it's a willful effort. It is a willful effort to say like don't like let's not look at this network. Let's not post our job over on the at, at the Harvard bulletin board. Let us just like try to find people to do the work who come from elsewhere. And I know, I know, it's not going to you, you know these elite institutions are as a shorthand. You it, like the people have the elite institutions feed into networks, and those networks then feed good applicants to you. And if they're they are good applicants. It's really nice, but it is as much on us to to not heed them. And to not care about them, as it is on them to change, because their their strong interest is not to allow this to happen. Their strong interest is to make them as, themselves as rich and as powerful, and as continuing to reinforce this their elite power as possible. So it's it, in a way to ask them to 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 deal with this problem is a mistake. It's like it has to be us uh, that deals with it.
1: I mean, I think that is a great point. I don't think it's enough. Another thing I would add to the mix is just like most people don't go to these elite schools. Most people go to non-selective or little bit selective schools, especially actually black and brown kids at higher rates. And so increasing the amount of resources those schools have and lifting them up and just reducing the inequality among higher ed institutions could do a lot of good. And this is obviously a feature of other countries, right? Like in Canada, in the UK, in European countries, you don't have this. Well, maybe the UK you do. I'm not sure, but oh, and in other, you don't have, what? you don't have this don't huge. Have... So forget the UK. Cause I don't, maybe Oxford I mean, like and Cambridge, France,
0: like all everyone, at, everyone in France, Like, all they talk about is, like, the people who went to whatever. All
1: right. Maybe this isn't... Let's just... I'm going to stick to Canada because I feel like it is true about Canada that the disparities are not as great. That you have these... Or Germany. Like, you have big public universities. um, It doesn't carry the same kind of hugely elite valence. Like, you have a higher ed system that is itself more evenly distributed.
2: What do we make? And is I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but the at least the Times piece I read, said that the public flagship universities, University of Texas, University of Virginia, the applicants with high-income parents were no more likely to get admitted than low-income applicants with comparable scores. Do states fix this because basically they've got legislatures watching and they would never... like They have a strong inclination to spread out you know, uh, admission across a state, and therefore that irons out some of these problems?
1: Yeah, that has been true in some states. So there are nine states, I believe, that have banned race-based affirmative action. Part of what happened in the fallout from when they did that was that some of them also banned legacy admissions. That's true, like, in Georgia, I think, and I think it's true in the University of California system as well. And then another thing they did was to start what are called like these top ten percent or top percent plans, where they take the top X percent of every high school in the state, and those kids are being chosen by grades, um, but and they are necessarily racially and economically diverse because of housing and school segregation, right? And so that's a way that you actually create some socioeconomic and racial diversity, even though the reason for it is like a bad one, that we are a segregated society. Um, But you use that weakness in high school education as like a strength for diversity in the university setting. And, you know, the national elite schools have. Traditionally said, like, well, we can't do that because like we're not a state. We can't just take certain percentage from every high school in the country. These are like creative people who should be highly motivated, despite David's earlier argument, to do something better. Like they're really on the hook right now. And so they should all hold hands and come up with a fairer system without violating antitrust law. Because anything they do collectively (laughs) could be accused
2: of that. Yes, that is a problem.
1: Okay, David is having technical difficulties in the form of an endless fire drill at his apartment, which, listeners, believe me, you don't want to listen to. So John and I are going to tackle our Hunter Biden topic on our own. John, Hunter Biden was supposed to plead guilty. This case was supposed to wrap up neatly and go away for a little while. And it seemed in court on Wednesday that the plea agreement could blow up entirely. What happened? Is happening.
2: What the hell? Basically, as near as I can tell, and this is based on you know my reading of um, of the papers, but also CBS's Catherine Herridge, who was in the Delaware courtroom, and then I talked to uh, Ricky Kleeman, who's our um, legal analyst at CBS. That the two big issues are one, the plea agreement, which prosecutors and Biden's lawyers apparently signed before they went in, but then when uh, Judge Noreika started asking about the details of the agreement, and particularly this question of whether Hunter Biden would be uh, open to further prosecution, um, the Biden folks said, no, he won't be. And the prosecutor said, yes, he will be. So this matters for two reasons. One, prosecutors have said that they are still investigating these allegations about um, corruption with respect to Hunter Biden's relationships with Ukrainian and Chinese entities, and also at some Possible tangential level, the involvement of the current sitting president. One has to be super careful between the unsubstantiated rumors peddled by uh, some opponents of the president and what the actual prosecutors may or may not be investigating. Um, Those are obviously quite different. But the point is, there is something there that investigators are looking at, and there was a disagreement about whether Hunter is on the hook for whatever they may find. Um, The second question is Is Hunter Biden potentially on the hook for something a future? Trump prosecutor might find um, related to these issues and if Donald Trump were to be elected again um, and then assign somebody to this case. And so that's a a problem. The second issue, as I understand it, is that the judge um, looked at this diversion agreement, which is essentially he would admit to getting a gun by giving false information about his drug habit, that he would admit to that, but he wouldn't be punished if he basically stayed clean for two years. As I understand it, the judge said that kind of diversion agreement is normally looked over or maintained or you check in with the prosecutors and that this agreement had the judge essentially watching over this diversion agreement to see uh, if it was being, um, lived up to. And the judge said, is that constitutional? That's not a role I'm supposed to play and had some questions about, about that. That seems to me to be kind of more technical. Um, and the first set of issues seem to be, sort of a fatal flaw to which I ask you, Emily, this question, which is, wouldn't total agreement on the terms of of the deal be kind of like the first thing you have to figure out before you go in before the judge? And isn't it crazy that they didn't have this all sorted out?
1: Yeah, I don't understand that part of it. I mean, when we were talking about this story a month ago or whenever that was, and it was clear then that the U.S. attorney investigating Biden was saying, We're still investigating. I thought, like, well, wait a second. Then what's the benefit of the plea deal to Hunter Biden? Because the one thing you really want from your plea deal is like, it's done, it's over, it's wrapped up. I go on with my life. Now, obviously, if there's a whole new set of offenses that either prosecutors don't know about when they sign the plea deal or that you haven't even committed yet. Like the plea deal doesn't get you off the hook for those, but we're not in that territory. Like there's lots of information going on between these parties about what is being investigated and not. So I always wondered about that vulnerability in this plea deal. And in that sense, I guess maybe it's not so surprising that it blew up this week, except that, like you said, you'd think they would have had all this buttoned up already.
2: Here's what Ricky Cleman said that I'm going to extrapolate from something she said cuz I said to her okay well so what happens now if Hunter Biden's future liability is something that they can't guarantee if if they can't guarantee Hunter Biden that he's off the hook in the future then they're not going to have an agreement and she said well basically everybody wants a deal not only does Hunter Biden want a deal to be done but she she said the prosecutors are probably don't really want to bring this case in Delaware for the favorite son uh, of the sitting at the moment president. And so there may not be a real winner of a case here for prosecutors, so they may be getting the most they can get. Um, and that that would what that triggered in my mind was maybe because both sides wanted to get sides wanted to get to yes, they each had a reason to kind of not press too hard on this question. Basically, I mean, the prosecutors who you might think would want to get this, you know, be super clear about this. Well, you just kind of leave it vague and then you lift, then you fight another day over whether the previous immunity deal, um, you know, truly uh, in, I guess, would it indemnify? Would that be the word I want? Protected by immunity too. Yeah. Yeah. um, That you would just sort of bake into any future case if you had to bring one, the fight over whether the previous deal. Uh, meant Hunter was clear and that, that this they each had different interests to kind of ignore this fact. This is not what Ricky said. It's what I extrapolated from her with what seemed to me a sensible point about why both sides would want a case to be basically wrapped up.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And then it's like the judge poked at it, right? And then everybody had to really look at what these words actually (laughs) meant. And then it turned out they meant different things to the two parties. And now they have to go back and like have to face up to this.
2: One of the things I was wondering, Emily, is whether you think that if the judge basically kicks the tires and everybody in the coverage of this mentions that she was a Trump appointee, although we should also mention that she was a Trump appointee put forward or at least – uh, supported by the two democratic senators from Delaware. Um, so, but if the judge goes through all this and says, I, you know, I want to make sure this is all square. What I'm wondering is whether that makes it actually a stronger deal than if she had just rubber stamped it. Um, and therefore, as people are looking at this as, you know, certainly Republicans have talked about this deal as being, um, Uh, Representative of, of two different kinds of justices, whether if, in fact, the prosecutors can get her the answer she wants, she ends up making it seem like a more stable plea deal than it would have been had she just rubber stamped it.
1: Maybe. I guess I have two reasons to be skeptical about that. One is that I'm not sure there's anything that could happen in this courtroom that would prevent the sort of right-wing conspiracy he's being treated specially from continuing because it's just such useful political ammunition. It's like popcorn for the um, Republicans who are going in this direction. So there's that. The other thing is if they end up coming out with a hammered out agreement that more clearly protects Hunter Biden from future prosecution than the people who see corruption here are going to say, see, I told you so.
2: True enough. That's right. They'll they'll say, had we not made so much noise and, you know, they'll claim to have influenced this process. And, you know, thank goodness we made so much noise because we influenced the process and see, look what it found. Yeah, that's wise. Can I ask you the, um, what do the lawyers go off and do now question?
1: They go off and talk to each other, I think, right? I mean, there's this sort of performance of being in open court when you can be more full of bluster. And then there's like, okay, let's roll up our sleeves and figure out what we can agree to. And if you're right, and it makes sense that it's in both parties' interest to settle, then they're going to come up with a settlement. But it does seem like there is this this fly in the ointment about this ongoing investigation. And I just don't have any insight into how attached to that possibility the prosecutors are, what is really there that is actually wheat and not like rumor-mongering chaff, as you were talking about before. But if they have facts they're still developing, they're going to be loath to give those up entirely.
2: And by give those up entirely. Well,
1: and also, sorry, you know, just in terms of the operation of the justice system— they should be loath to give them up, right? Like if they're not sure where exactly it leads, if they are still figuring things out, you want them to be able to pursue that kind of investigation. On the other hand, if they know what the shape of it is now, then yes, it should be part of the plea agreement, right? Like you can now put yourself in the shoes of an ordinary defendant, even though of course Hunter Biden is not such a person, but you know, you want a settlement to be just that, a settlement of these facts, like the ideas of, I admit X and Y, I agree to these consequences and now I can go on with my life.
2: You know, and back to building on your previous, um, excellent point about the political context in which this takes place. So imagine you're the prosecutor. And if you're, if our emerging theory is right, and the plea agreement had some kind of winking and nodding in it, um, to, to allow it kind of, to be good for both sides. Well, now everybody's watching you know the, whole, the stadium is full and um, the, the you know, play by play commentators are there. And now, if you're the prosecutor, you're really it's happening now in real time because anything you do to fix the agreement, any subsequent fact that comes out about any other thing happening with Hunter Biden will be evidence not just you know, in some people's minds of Hunter's guilt, but of your perfidy because you made a deal even though you had. You had a chance to get out. You had it right because the judge has given them a chance to get out. You had a chance to get out and you didn't. Even though these two whistleblowers from the wall from the IRS came forward, you blew all that off and you 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 inked this deal again even knowing what was out there, it seems to just raise the stakes super high for the prosecutor.
1: Yeah, and just to add one other factor, you know, obviously the IRS whistleblowers and the um, Republicans at the House have been pushing this narrative. Their big target here is Attorney General Merrick Garland and the idea that actually he was preventing David Weiss, the prosecutor, from having full independence in making decisions in this case. And so that's part of this mix. And so if... The prosecutor now goes ahead anyway. It has to be really clear that he is the one calling the shots. That's going to be important to the Justice Department, to the to the um, defense that Merrick Garland has been giving of his own conduct.
2: It's really because now it's not a case. Of, I mean, there are going to be a lot of bad faith arguments like <laughs> by the bushel full. But. But a lot of the so at the one end on Hunter, you have the Marjorie Taylor Greene showing, you know, explicit pictures of him in a congressional testimony. Right. We can all agree that that is um, not acting in good faith and is the kind of very low end of public discourse. But on the other hand, you know, the influence of the attorney general on a case involving the president is certainly worthy to have a big, large, open conversation about. And you could imagine people. Spending a lot of time in that category um, and those are all sort of legitimate questions, whereas a lot of the hunter Biden Michigas has s- sort of spent the time in the Purient category. I just wonder whether this allows for more discourse because it's now a legal question and and a conflict of interest question and a political influence question in a way that's more kind of sanitized than when it was just the purview of the kind of Marjorie, Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Green section.
1: Yeah. I mean, clearly the more that we all talk about Hunter Biden, the worse for Joe
2: Biden and the Democrats. Yeah. I, th- I wonder, I mean, so yes, obviously, especially if it's about whether the justice department cooked the books for him or the IRS did, or obviously whether the, president knew of his son. I mean, clearly Hunter Biden used his father's position to buckrake, uh, as the children of presidents have done, um, both in and out of office. And obviously former president Trump's kids and son-in-law did well, uh, as a result of his position. Um, but if the closer it becomes tied to the actual president, that's bad. On the other hand, if it's all just the son, there's kind of the reverse of what i was saying earlier which is people might just say eh, you know you, you're saying there are issues of conflict of interest here and all that but really this is the president's son and his behavior and that's kind of in a box over here so i'm not going to listen um, i'm not saying that's going to happen i'm saying it it's a it's a potential possibility that the more they hear a bunch of punter stuff but they've already decided you know i don't want to watch look at pictures of him with no clothes on and that that's what that's the box i'm putting all this stuff in Sort of regardless
0: of what's actually being debated.
1: Perhaps. All right, let's wrap up and let David back in.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are having a really cold, frosty one in this heat wave. John, what are you going to be chattering about?
2: My chatter is about an extraordinary rescue mission going on in the middle of the Red Sea. The only thing keeping about a million barrels of oil, the thin membrane, separating a million barrels of oil from getting dumped into the Red Sea is the creaky, rusting hull of an old ship. Um, and this old ship sits off of the coast of Yemen, a casualty of the civil war there. And all of this oil has been a ticking time bomb on this ship. And so the UN started a rescue mission a couple of days ago. It's going to take 20 days where they basically roll up a ship and you do roll ships, I think that all the seamen and, and sea women out there will will uh, back me up on that. Um, you the, the ship came alongside and is now basically siphoning off the oil from inside the creaky old disaster. But the problem is this is super tricky because if you take the oil out too fast, it can destabilize what's in there causing the hull to spasm or whatever and bust open and then disgorge all of this oil out into uh, the Red Sea. And the, the reason that would be awful is not only would it, would it cost $20 billion to clean up, but it might very well block the ports into Yemen which deliver 17 million people humanitarian aid, as well as just, I think, also food and so forth. And obviously, if you don't do it fast enough, this siphoning off of the oil, there's a chance that um, the ship just breaks apart because it's so old and creaky, and and the UN is worried that it's going to bust open and befoul the water anyway. So it's just this very super tricky thing going on, um, and may they be successful.
0: Emily, what's your chatter?
1: So I realized the last thing the world needs is more commentary about the movie Barbie. And yet I cannot resist because I have a single point to make about it that I have not seen endlessly repeated elsewhere. Although now that I say that, I realize that our listeners who are into Barbie will probably find 10 examples. But I had many love hate moments with this movie. Here's one that I want to highlight.
2: Hold on. Is this a spoiler, and if so, do we need to let people know?
1: I don't think so. Well,
2: just people, if you are in a state of pre-Barbie fibrillation, you may want to uh, come to a conclusion before you listen to what Emily has to say.
1: So true. Okay, if this counts as a spoiler, I apologize, and you should stop listening if you don't want to know anything. It's not a plot spoiler. So the kid in this movie Starts off great. She's like this cynical, sassy teenager. She's wearing, I think, painter's pants. She's like not into the whole Barbie dress-up scene. Loved her. Then she's wearing like a fancy pink dress and she kind of stops talking and becomes like this much more passive kind of princess-looking girl. And I know that that happens when she's in Barbieland, but it was super disappointing to me that she couldn't hang on to her like, rebel teenage girl thing. On the other hand, there was another development later in the movie involving her character and her mother, which I quite appreciated. I won't spell it out for all of you who haven't seen Barbie yet. But anyway, I just wonder what other folks, um, other feminists out there made of this teenager portrayal and if anyone shared my sense of affection for her initially, but then some sense of disappointment. She also just basically stops being a character at all later in the movie.
0: My chatter is I'm maybe the last person to this. Um but uh my girlfriend and I have been watching the show Jury Duty on Amazon Prime. Do you all know about the show? It is it's this effort to so it's it it's it's holds itself forth as a it's going to be inside a jury room in a in a civil case in California. Um, but everyone except one person on the jury is an actor. Uh, and there's this one extremely lovely young man who is not an actor, who is just thinks he's doing his du- duty being on the jury. And then this kind of chaotic, crazy trial unfolds around him. And it is so, so, so funny I, it is so funny. I'm getting so much pleasure from this thing. I can't even express it. I don't even want to know. I mean, like, I'm sure I'm going to find out that there's some terrible darkness in this and I shouldn't, I shouldn't love it as much as I do, but I absolutely love it. So if you're looking for something that is hilarious and delightful, I strongly suggest jury duty on Amazon Prime to you. Have you seen it, John?
2: I haven't. Anne was on a jury recently and all the people on the jury were talking about it. Um, but I, uh, no, I ha- I haven't seen it.
0: Listeners, you also have chatters. Uh, you keep them coming. You sent us a whole raft of them in the last couple of weeks. Please keep emailing them to us at gabfest at slate.com, tweeting them to us at Uh And listener chatter this week comes from Susan Bates. Hi, Gabfest. This is Susan Bates from Tenants Harbor, Maine. I'm chattering about a book by Elizabeth Letts The Ride of Her Life, The True Story of a Woman, Her Horse, and their last chance journey across America. We travel with Annie Wilkins, who at 63 decides to leave her hardscrabble life on a farm in Maine, and in 1954 sets off on horseback across the US. She wants to see the Pacific Ocean before she dies, and she figures she has nothing to lose. It's the story of her gumption and the kindness of strangers she meets on her journey, as well as a portrait of the nation and the changes that are happening in the 50s especially due to television and the interstate system. It's just the read your summer is asking for. That's it for our show today. The Gap is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of audio of Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Can't even say follow us on Twitter anymore, can you? Follow us on X at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. Email chatter to us at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus, or as we say, manishma. What's up? What's up? Slate Plus, how are you? Emily and I are here. We just had a conversation about the political situation in Israel and the geopolitical situation between Israel and the United States. But we wanted to talk a bit about our own personal relationship to Israel, because I think both of us are uh, Jews. We are both Americans. We both have connections to Israel that are deeper than, than superficial. And I find, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Emily, but I find it very hard as an American Jew to speak about Israel because obviously I have so many personal connections to people there. I've spent a lot of time in Israel. I do think of it, I actually don't think of it this way, but I know that lots of people think of it as a haven if they wanted to move. But of course, being Jewish and being an American Jew is not synonymous with being Israeli. We don't vote there. I don't vote there at least. I do not want to be held accountable for what the Israeli government does. I do not, you know, want to speak for Israeli people. I don't want to take credit for anything good that Israel does in the world. I don't want to do take the blame for the bad things that and I don't like the way that the special relationship between America and Israel mediated through American Jews has been used both to unfairly criticize Israel and to unfairly excuse Israel. So that, like, that's my, I just want to set up my premises here.
1: Well, I very much agree with the last thing you said uh, about the special relationship between America and Israel being a problem in both directions. I I think I have a somewhat different personal history from you on this. So when I was growing up, I was a huge Zionist in the sense that I read a lot of Holocaust literature I read a lot of very um, romantic, wonderful books about Israel. I feel like we've talked about Leon Uris on this show, but one should <laughs> not discount Exodus. the influence of Exodus and Mila 18 and various rather overwrought, sentimental, but rich historical novels on me when I was growing up. And I went to Israel with my grandparents when I was 11 on this wonderful trip. I made lifelong friends there. I learned uh, Hebrew um. When I was in high school, I worked on kibbutz, I learned more Hebrew in college, I went back to Israel to spend a summer to do research, wrote my senior essay about proto-feminists in Israel, and then spent a year in Israel after college and thought about moving there. I don't know how seriously I really thought about it, but I very much had the idea at the time, and right, this is the eighties and nineties, especially in the nineties when I happened to be there for the Oslo Peace Accords, that Israel would be a better place politically than the United States, that it would solve its problems with the Palestinians. There would be two states. There would be this era of peace and economic prosperity, and it seemed exciting to potentially be part of it. Now, I didn't do any of that. I came home when I was 23, and I've only visited Israel since then. But what has been extraordinarily Painful and upsetting to me is how much the society has gone in the other direction. The government. I mean, I also have close friends there. There are people I love, you know, as much as I love anyone in the world. And when I have gone in recent years, I have felt at home, you know, in Tel Aviv, in Haifa, in the parts of Israel that still feel secular and vibrant. But Jerusalem, where I lived, has really changed. It's much more religious. And mostly. The right-wing turn of the government and the way in which a lot of is, of Israelis have become more right-wing and have just lost faith in a two-state solution and the way in which the demographics have a kind of stranglehold right now, I find just extraordinarily dismaying. And so while I did think of Israel as a haven growing up, I kind of don't know what to think now, and it is very hard to talk.
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation, if you want to hear the whole conversation go to slate.com slash gab plus to become a member today
3: hello it is your partner big boy interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood introducing neighbor to neighbor a california volunteers network that empowers you to take action contribute to local needs and be a part of something bigger than yourself visit c neighborscom to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community Neighbor to neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.